Our sermon this morning is from Daniel chapter 3 um, on the, the image of gold and the blazing furnace. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Daniel chapter 3 in page, on page 692. So turn there, um, or you can follow along in your bulletin or um, yeah, with, your, with your own Bible. Um, quick recap of Daniel chapters 1 and 2 that we heard the last couple of weeks, and then we're just going to dive right in because we've got a lot of a lot of ground to cover, and so we want to try to make it through the whole chapter. Daniel 1, uh, Israel, the, the nation of Israel, but specifically the region of Judah and the city of Jerusalem have been captured by the, the superpower that is Babylon, and they have been taken off into captivity. They've been deported, and specifically the king of Babylon says, bring me kind of the best of the best, the young men from the city of Jerusalem, bring them into my royal court of Babylon, and I'm going to deprogram them and reprogram them to be Babylonians. I'm going to take the best of the best that uh, Judah, Jerusalem has to offer, and I'm going to make them uh, kind of representatives of Babylon instead of, of uh, Israel, instead of Judah. So Daniel and his contemporaries, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are their, their new names that they eventually get. But Daniel and these guys are brought in. They're part of that kind of deportation, exile uh, story. And so chapter 1, we see a story where they refuse to eat the, the uh, meat and wine that uh, the king uh, offers them. Instead, they eat vegetables, and God supernaturally provides and, and um, you know, allows for them to, to do that. Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, this kind of enigmatic dream, and uh, it appears like no one in the entire uh, empire is able to tell him uh, what his dream is and what it means, but then God supernaturally intervenes and provides for Daniel and kind of gives him revelation about King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, thereby saving Daniel's life and the lives of all of the you know religious leaders in the in the the region. And so that's that's Daniel chapter one and two respectively. Uh, today we are on the story of Shad- it's probably a classic story you might be familiar with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and uh, the story of the image of gold and the fiery uh, furnace. So I'm going to pray. And then we are just going to uh, read through it as we go. We're going we're to read through it and work through it uh, over the next few minutes together and just consider what this text means and how it applies to our lives as, as Christians today. So let's pray, and then let's dive into the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Lord Jesus, we uh, come to you this morning. We, we ask your blessing on our time together Uh, in your word. Jesus, we pray that you would meet us here, that you would speak to us. We pray that you would work in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, quiet our hearts so that we can hear from you. And then we pray that you would soften our hearts so that we could respond uh, to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Chapter 3, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and whose breadth was 6 cubits. A cubit is about a foot and a half, 18 inches, you know, kind of your uh, elbow to your fingertip is essentially what a, a cubit is. And so this statue, this image that he makes uh, of, of solid gold is 90 feet tall. It's a massive massive statue. It's so big that it can't be kind of in the city limits where people are as to be out. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of, of Babylon. 
So this massive, tall image that's out in the, the plains. This is, um, if you're familiar with Genesis, right, this is meant to kind of remind you some of the Tower of Babel, which itself was a, a really tall tower. The people thought that it was going to be all the way up. They were going to build this tower to heaven. Uh, and it was specifically said to be uh, on, the, on the plains uh, in, in Babylon. And so, um, so kind of the same uh, impulse that was kind of driving this Tower of Babel. We want to all come together. We want to all be one. We want to build a name for ourselves. We want to be unified. We want to exalt ourselves. We want to build and accomplish our way to heaven. That's kind of the similar impulse. There, there's, there's those literary cues that are calling back from this, back to the Tower of Babel. So that seems to be what King Nebuchadnezzar's impulse is that's driving this, right? I want to gather everyone together. I, wanna, I want us to all be united. I want us to all bow down together. I want us to all worship the God that I made, where I am at the center of it. It's it's interesting. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's story in these first few chapters of Daniel is very interesting because um, you kind of see, it's almost like watching a game of ping pong or something, just back and forth. You get whiplash because he's continually seeing God work in these magnificent, mighty, intervening acts. Right? Uh, Daniel basically goes on this like zero calorie diet and gains weight and gets huge. And that there's this, this miraculous intervention. And then Daniel, it, he's, it's very evident that he has wisdom and, and knowledge and power. And so Nebuchadnezzar sees it and he's really impressed by it. But then, you know, he immediately kind of, re, you know, kind of reverts back into, into, you know, looking for religious wisdom from shamans and all kinds of other guys. And then he again sees Daniel's God supernaturally intervene and he literally says at the end of chapter 2, right, um, you know, truly the God of Daniel is the God of gods, chapter 2, verse 47, the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, right? So, so you would think at the end of chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar is, he believes in God, he trusts in God, he is a follower of the one true God. But immediately at the beginning of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold and is not only, invi- not only worshiping it himself, but he's inviting other people to worship. He's not only inviting them, he's requiring that they, that they worship this, this God. And so you can see in Nebuchadnezzar's life, I mean, not only can you get a little bit of whiplash if you kind of read it, but it kind of speaks to um, what theologians call harmardiology or the doctrine of sin. Right, it speaks to the sinfulness of sin. It speaks to the insidiousness of sin. It speaks to the deceptive nature of sin and kind of how sin that how sin is a formidable opponent for a believer and how we need to be careful to fight against sin because it will I mean, it will constantly, it's, it never stops, and it's trying to creep and worm its way in and, and pull you away from any allegiance that you had to the one true God. Nebuchadnezzar has seen miracles, he's recognized the power of God through those miracles, and yet um, immediately on the heels of seeing and exclaiming the, the power and glory of God in the end of chapter 2, he is immediately building an idol, worshiping it, and demanding that other people worship it. Sin will cause you to do things that are absurd and, and nonsensical and 
self-destructive, right? Sin always starts by asking very little and promising the world, right? Just, uh, you know, eat this fruit from this tree. That's seemingly this innocuous act. And then you'll be like God. You'll be able to do whatever you want and live however you want or, or you know, uh, turn this stone into to bread. And, you know, the sin starts with, with just asking very little and promising the world. But sin doesn't keep its promises. Idols don't keep their promises. Slowly and deceptively and without you even noticing, sin begins to demand more and more from you and offer less and less in return until it has chewed you up, right? It's, it's taken your entire life and left you as a shell of a, of a person. And so we can kind of see that. We can see the, the insidiousness and the deceptive. I mean, I'm sure that, I don't think Nebuchadnezzar was lying at the end of chapter 2 when he said, God is the one true God, and I believe in him, and I want everyone to believe in him and worship him. I think he, you know, I think he, I think he would have passed a lie detector test in that moment. But almost immediately on the heels of that, he's already reverted back into idolatry because of the, the insidiousness, deceitfulness, just the, the, the sinfulness of, of sin. And so when we as believers read about Nebuchadnezzar, it should prompt us to take sin seriously, to fight against it militantly, and to, to, you know, yeah, be ruthless in how we, you know, fight against and, and guard against sin in our, in our lives. Don't be fooled by it. Don't be taken captive by it. So, King Nebuchadnezzar sets up this massive image on the plains in Babylon, verse 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that the king had set up. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and the officials that all gathered for the dedication to, of the image that the king had set up. And they, they stood before uh, the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, when you hear every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." And as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music, all the peoples, the nations, the languages, they fell down, they worshipped the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Everything seems to be going to plan, right? We've built this huge statue. We've gathered all of the religious, all of the political leaders here uh, with us, and we've instructed them to all bow down and worship, and they all have done that. I mean, if you can see, so you can see an element of of, harmony, of, of the, the doctrine of sin. We can see that 
on display in Nebuchadnezzar's life and how he just quickly reverts from saying that God is God just to whoop, right back into to, you know, building and worshiping idols. But we can also see an element of, of the doctrine of sin or sinfulness of sin in the, in the, the actions of these uh, religious and political leaders who seemingly are just happy to worship anyone and anything at the drop of a hat if it will serve them, if it will benefit them in any... I mean, how, like, how seriously should we take these guys' worship of this idol? I mean, again, these are, these are you know, the, the, the leaders, the, the, the culture makers of their day. This is the king's inner circle, as it were. And they wake up one morning, and they, I'm sure they have a worldview, they have a belief system, they know who they think is God, they know who they think made them, they know who they think is responsible for last year's harvest that they're eating for breakfast that morning, they know who they think gave their wife, you know, a, a, the ability to get pregnant and have children so that they can, like, they have a category for, like, who should I be thankful to for all of the things that I have in my life? And then that's at 9 a.m., and then at 10 a.m. they get a, you know, they get a messenger that says, I want you to come uh, bow down before this image. And they're like, yeah, no problem. Happy to do that. Happy to abandon every single thing that I thought I believed one moment ago to nail worship exactly who, this, who the king tells me I should worship right now. So they'll bow down to him, thank this golden idol for having created them, given them a harvest, given them children, given them, you know, everything that they, that they need in life makes you wonder if that really means anything at all. If you, if you can just, like, not one guy, right? I mean, aside from the guys we'll meet in just a moment, the Israelites, but not one guy says, like, I don't know, like, could we talk about this first? Or could you give me some reasons for why you think I should believe in this God that you're saying that I should believe? Like, not one guy, like, wants to hear some evidence for, like, why this isn't a scam, why this isn't a complete, just complete baloney, which it appears, to, right? Like, the Bible speaks often of idolatry, just it, 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 in terms of just foolishness, just silly, like why would anyone, why would anyone in their right mind build a thing? Like I built this, with my, I, I was alive yesterday, this thing was not. I built it today, and, and now I'm going to bow down before it and worship it as if it was the thing that created me. It's absurd, right? Like, I, I built it. Why would, you know, um, in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 44, God, uh, Isaiah is speaking about, and God is kind of speaking through Isaiah about the absurdity of idolatry. And he says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. God says, I am the first I am the last. There is no God beside me. Right? Who is like me? Is there any God besides me? There is no rock, not any. Then he continues to say, everyone who fashions idols are nothing. Right? The things that they delight in do not profit at all. 
their witnesses neither see nor know they, that they may be put to shame. All of their companions will be put to shame. An ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals, and then he fashions it and hammers and works with it with his strong arm. A carpenter stretches out a lawn, and he marks it with a pencil, and he shapes it uh, with planes and marks it with a compass. And he shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. And he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak tree. And he lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar in the rain and nourishes it. And then it becomes fuel for a man. Right? He takes part of it. He takes part of that cedar, part of that oak, part of that wood. And he uses it as fuel to warm himself. He kindles a fire with it. He bakes bread with it. And then he takes another part of it and he makes a god out of it. And he worships that god. He makes it into an idol and he falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Half of it he eats, uses it to eat meat and he roasts with it. And he says to himself, ah, I'm warm. I have seen the fire. And then the rest of it he makes into a god. And he worships it and he says, deliver me because you are my god. Isaiah is like being, he's pointing out how absurd and ridiculous idolatry. The idea of exchanging the glory of the god that created you for a created thing let alone a thing that you created. He's saying that's absurd. Like, it's absurd to... How do you know you got the right half? How do you know that, like... Right? Like, this is, this is the half to make s'mores with. This is the half that's really the God that made me and that I owe my entire life to and all of my worship and all of the... Re- like, everything that I have belongs to... Like, it's like, he's saying that's insane and s- stupid. Idolatry is absurd and, and foolish. So Nebuchadnezzar wanting to build this idol is absurd and foolish. Nebuchadnezzar worshiping the idol, absurd and foolish. Nebuchadnezzar mandating that people worship the idol is absurd and and foolish. And then these guys who wake up one day believing, they wake up believing in this other God, and now they're, sure, yeah, I'm happy to worship the God that you tell me to. It's pointing, it's just, it it exposes how absurd and and foolish the entire uh, system is. And frankly, with these guys, with all of the, political and religious leaders that are invited here, it points out how meaningless their worship is, right? If your worship, if you're, if you are, if you, you know, if, if you just always buy the jersey of the team that won the Super Bowl, and that's your favorite team now, and then the next year, you just, that's your new favorite team, like, then you're like, well, that doesn't even, all right, fine, you don't, it doesn't even, I'm not even going to, right, as opposed to, like, the guy who, like, is the like the Red Sox, right? Like they didn't win for like a bajillion years and then they won. And so like that, like if you were a fan of them when they were bad, right? Like then your fandom means something as opposed to if you just kind of jump from one team, right? If you just, I'm happy to worship the God that you say that I should worship. Well, it's because you, that guy's rich and powerful and you want him owing you a favor. Or it's because that guy's going to throw you into a furnace if you don't. And so clearly your worship is just a, you know, a, a, it's a piece of currency that you'll just use. Yeah, I'm happy to spend it here to, to, to you know, ingratiate myself to this person. Or I'm happy to spend it here to, to save myself from suffering or from persecution over here. It's calculated and it's inauthentic and it's opportunistic. So we can just see the absurdity of idolatry, the absurdity of worshiping uh, uh, just some random God that you're told to, to worship. This thing, you know, the text is trying to kind of point us to, it's to contrast what it looks like to really 
worship God, trust in God, believe in God with strong conviction, which we're going to see in a moment, and just the absurdity, the chaff in the wind, right, of, of uh, worshiping uh, an idol and worshiping whatever idol that happens to be convenient for you to worship uh, at, that, at that moment. But the absurdity doesn't stop there, right? It do, the absurdity of the, the leaders doesn't stop with them falling down and worshiping the golden image that the king had set up. Although that's absurd enough, right? It's absurd and foolish enough to make the idol. It's absurd and foolish enough to worship the idol just because some rich guy told you to. But it doesn't stop there because, because they're not satisfied with that. I'm not, I'm not satisfied with when Nebuchadnezzar told me to worship the idol, and so I will. It's like idol, idols are never, right? They... they they're never satisfied. They always want more. And the people that are beholden to those idols, uh, you know, are at their service, are never satisfied and always want more. In verse 8, it says, Therefore, at a certain time, the, the, or, yeah, at, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and they said, O king, live forever. Haven't you made a decree that every man who, wears, oh, who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music, that they should fall down and worship the image, and whoever does not should be cast into the fiery furnace? There are certain Jewish people who you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Like, why do you care? Right? Like, you, you, if you want to worship the idol that he made, go for it. And if he wants, right, that's fine. What, why, what's it to you? Why does it matter to you whether someone that's not you bows down and worships some god that you didn't know existed a day ago that, you know, that it, it's, it, it's not your god, right? Nebuchadnezzar maybe has reason to care whether they do or not, but why did, what, what's it to these guys? Why do they care? Because worshiping idols and, and being enslaved by idols uh, is, is never, you, you're, it's never enough, you're never satisfied. It might represent at the outset, right, this kind of pluralistic tolerance, you know, you know, inclusion, you do you, I'll do me, right? It, kind of might, it might represent that at first, but it doesn't take long before the worshiping of idols, you know, starts to say, no, it's not enough for you to believe what you believe and I'll believe what I believe, but I, want, I demand that you believe what I believe. You have to do it my way. You have to pay lip service to my God. It's not enough that I be given the opportunity to worship the God that I want because, frankly, I'm going to worship whatever God's most convenient for me to worship at that moment anyway. It's not enough for me to be allowed to worship my God. I want you to worship my God. If you don't, then I want you to be forced to worship my God. And if you don't, then I want, I mean, I mean threat of violence, threat of death. Idolatry, the worship of idols is not nearly as inclusive and live and let live as it purports to be, Right? You go worship the one true God, I'll worship this fake God, and we can both kind of live according to our respective convictions. It might claim that, it's not right. Ultimately, idolatry says, I want you to worship my God. I am going to worship my God, and I want you to worship my God. As soon as the worship of my God has been normalized and institutionalized, then now I want you to worship my God. And if you don't, then I'm going to force you. I'm going to force you to act the way I want you to act. I'm going to force you to say that you believe what I want you to believe. 
idolatry morphs into coercion and manipulation and forced silence. You're not allowed to say that. Forced speaking, you must say this. Forced thinking, right? I'm going to make you believe this under threat of violence. Verse 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego be brought. And so they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered them and said, Is it true, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set? So I can't, how, how dare you not worship the God that I told you? To, I mean, what kind of... What kind of the, the audacity of someone to like, you know, if you understand their worship to have any intrinsic meaning or value at all, then you would expect that it not that that they do it on like as they become convinced and actually you know uh, moved in their own heart and soul to worship accordingly, but not that they would just do it right uh, away. And so he's he's mad that they haven't, but it's an absurd expectation that they would in the in the first place. Verse 15, now if you are ready to hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music and fall down to the image that I have made, then that's all well and good. But if you do not worship, then you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And then, then who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? You can kind of hear the pride and the, you know, the... The self-aggrandizing, self-exalting. I am the most powerful being that I could possibly conceive of. If I want to destroy you, if I want to destroy something, who in the world, who in all of the existence could possibly thwart my purposes? I am strong. I am powerful. Of course, the... The answer to the question, right, this, this is a reasonable question if you understand yourself to be a God. If you understand yourself to be the strongest, most powerful being that there is. But this is a stupid question if you believe, if you believe in God and you believe you're standing in front of a man, then this question is idiotic. It's the dumbest, who is the God that will ever deliver you out of my hands? God? Like, the God who is infinitely sovereign, the God who created you, the God who is actually holding you in his hands, the God who the only reason you're not dead and crushed to powder right now is because he has chosen to allow you to continue to, to live. Right? You can kind of tell from the, the question only makes sense from a maniacal Right, a, 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 this, a, a dictator with delusions of grandeur, and for any reasonable human being, it is an absurd question. Right? Of course, there's someone that can save me out of your hands. It's the God that made you and the God that made me. He is the King. He is God. And so here's how Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego respond to him. They say, "O oh, Nebuchadnezzar." We have, no, I mean, he's never heard this before in his life, right? We have no, ne- who the heck do you think you are? 
asking us a question and expecting us to, to feel obligated to give you an answer. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this is so, if you throw us into the fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from that burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You're not, you're not God. You're just a man, right? I'm, not, you're, I'm a man. You're, you're, sure, you have more money. You have more power. You can snap your finger. But you're just a man. Any authority that you have is authority that was given to you by God. We answer to you in the near term on matters where God has given you authority because God is in charge of of you. Ultimately, we answer to God because God is the one who has final authority over and above you. You may think that you're a God. You may think that no one can save us out of your hands, but you're not, and we are not afraid of you. And they're saying this to a man who it's, it's well documented that this man does in fact have the authority to throw them into a burning, fiery furnace. I mean, this is, this is fierce, bold faith. Right? The, the faith of the other leaders is fake and stupid and uh, inauthentic and fraudulent and opportunistic, right? Just say whatever you have to say to, to, you know, say that you believe in whoever the rich, powerful guy says that he wants you to say that you believe in so that you can ingratiate yourself to him and have him owe you a favor. That's silly and stupid. This is real, bold faith. We are going to put all of our chips into the middle and either God intervenes to save us or we die a horrible, terrible, painful death. These Hebrew men are an example to us of what bold faith looks like. But it's not just bold faith that says, you know, Our God, because it is bold faith, our God can, the God that we serve is able to deliver us from this burning, fiery furnace. It's that, and there's this deep-seated, deeply held conviction that says, you know what, even if he doesn't, he is still God, he is still worthy of worship and honor and praise and exaltation, we are going to give him what we are what he is worthy of, what we are obligated to give him, and he doesn't owe us anything in return. God does not, we, you know, we're not saying we will worship God, trust God, hold fast to God, right up until something happens in our life that is, that is not what we wanted it to happen, and then at that moment we are going to revert back. We're, we're going to, you know, they're saying God's will is better than our will. God's plan is better than our plan. You better believe we're praying that God will save us from this fiery furnace. And we are absolutely 100% 
confident, assured that he can and is able to save us from this fiery furnace. But you know what? If he doesn't, we're still going to be faithful to God. Right? God is not obligated to answer our prayers in the exact way that we want Him to answer them on the exact timeline, time frame that we want Him to answer our prayers. God is God. He is the Creator. We are His creatures. So it's God's will that we want to be done, not ours. It's God's plan that we want to see unfold, not ours. If that will and if that plan involves us suffering more than our plan and our will has us suffering, so be it. We're still going to be faithful to Him. We're still going to trust in Him. We're still going to worship Him. Right? These men are speaking. This is how a person who trusts in the sovereignty of God speaks. I believe that God is sovereign and even if God doesn't do what I want, I'm still going to trust him and obey him. That's how, a, that's how a person speaks who trusts in the sovereignty of God. That's how Christians speak about God. Look how Nebuchadnezzar responds in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was, was changed against Shadrach and Meshach and, and Abednego. Right? This is, this is how idolatry, this is how you can tell that you're dealing with with an idol, with a fraudulent, created thing that has stolen worship away from the sovereign God who is the rightful owner of said worship. The way that you can spot idolatry in your heart or in the the hearts of of others is that, I mean, one, right, it's the things that you think about and dream about and long for and romanticize and fantasize about and man if i had that then my life would right that's those are kind of telltale signs that you're maybe dealing with something that has risen to the level of an idol in your heart but another is how do you respond when that thing is threatened right when it's something that you have that is all of a sudden threatened the thing that you get most mad about that you just fly into a blind rage about if this thing is threatened, right? I can't believe that they gave that promotion to them instead of me. Or how dare you try to wrestle control away from me about this thing that I have and, and like. Or how dare you tell me that I can't have this thing that I want or do this thing that I want to do. And you lash out in anger. That is the, the telltale signs of idolatry. Nebuchadnezzar's idol is threatened, and Nebuchadnezzar reacts exactly how an idolater reacts when their idol is threatened. He's furious. He's, he can't even see straight. He's so mad. And he orders the furnace to be heated seven times more than it is usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego to cast them into the fiery furnace, right? I am so, like, as if you could, as if just the, the, you know, as if just the normal temperature of a fiery furnace isn't hot enough, right? I want to, I want to, you know, blow past the manufacturer's, you know, recommended maximum right i don't like just i want to i want to make this thing as hot as it could possibly be i want to get the biggest strongest most powerful men that there are to to you know take these these guys up and throw them into this fiery furnace the men were bound in their cloaks their tunics their hats their other garments and they were thrown into the fiery furnace thus ensuring that that no one will ever king nebuchadnezzar has spoken 
And I think I have sufficiently put an end to that kind of rebellion. No one will ever defy in order for me ever again about how and who that they should worship. In fact, the the king's order was so urgent and the furnace was so overheated that the flame of the fire killed the men who were taking Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up there. These three men, or the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, when those guys died because they're burned to death, then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell into the burning furnace. Because that's what happens when you worship idols, is that there's collateral damage. People, people, there are unintended consequences in the people around you, right? When you give yourself over to addictions or to, to unrepentant sin, and, and just unbridled selfishness that affects other people. There are people that are looking to you as an example and a spiritual leader and a mentor in the faith, and it does damage to their faith. There, if you have kids, they're watching how their parents are acting, speaking to one another. Right? There's collateral damage that comes with sin and idolatry. There's a, there's a vertical component, right? Your, your relationship with God uh, is, you know, it's sin and idolatry does violence to your vertical relationship with God, to be sure, but it also does violence to your horizontal relationships with other people around you. It hurts them, it makes them sad, it breaks their heart, it puts distance between you and them. Sin and idolatry always brings with it collateral damage. So now these three men are in the furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar is outside looking in. These men upstairs have died. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste and he declared to his counselors, didn't we cast three men into the fire? They answered and they said, true, O king. He said, well, I see four men. None of them are bound like the way that we, right? And, And they're walking around. They're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So the, the furnace that we had at first wasn't strong enough and hot enough, so we had to make it even uh, hotter, and then it became so hot that it killed the people that, that got, even got anywhere near it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are now in it, in the midst of the fire. They have not died, and there's a fourth person in there whose appearance is like a son of the, the gods. Interpreters don't quite know what to do with this verse, right? Some uh, you know, say this is an angel, which comports with what we see uh, in verse 28, just a couple of verses later. It mentions that there was an, an angel in there with them. Other commentators say that this is no ordinary angel, right? They point out and they say, no, this is someone that... Uh, is, is, you know, they look at him and they say, this is a man, right? I see four men, so there's nothing... You know, the fourth being looks like a man, just like the three men. But there's also something about him that he looks like, that he looks divine. There's something about him that is of divine origin. He's a son of the gods. He's the son of of God. Some scholars speculate that this is an appearance of the the pre-incarnate Christ, right? The Jesus that we see walking around in Galilee in the New Testament that he kind of makes these enigmatic appearances throughout the Old Testament, and that this would be one of them. There's a, 
There's, a, there, there's angels mentioned a lot in the Old Testament. A lot of times it refers to angels with an indefinite article, an angel of the Lord. Sometimes angels are referred to with a definite article, the angel of the Lord. And overwhelmingly, all of the times that we see angels referred to as the angel of the Lord, as opposed to an angel of the Lord, those angels speak differently than the ones that are referred to as an angel of the, the Lord. They, they speak as God himself. They refer to themselves as God. They identify themselves as God. They exercise authorities and responsibilities that only belong to God. We see it with uh, you know, Hagar in Genesis 16 and Abraham in Genesis 22 and Moses in Exodus chapter 3. But uh, weirdly, like while this happens off and on throughout the Old Testament, we don't see it at all in the New Testament. And so scholars and theologians speculate that maybe this angel of the Lord, who we all kind of agree, he's not just a regular angel. There's something uncreated about him. There's something divine. There's something, there's something about him that we're looking at God himself. Or, or, and, and again, that plus the fact that we don't see him anymore in the New Testament after Jesus uh, you know, comes. With the, there's scholars and theologians think that maybe the angel of the Lord is... Uh, an, an appearance of uh, the pre-incarnate Christ. And they'll point to this guy here in the, the furnace and say the same thing. Maybe this is that same, the angel of the Lord. One way or the other. One way or the other. Uh, what's, what's certainly, what is, what, is, what is clear is that these three men are not alone. They're not alone in the fire. They're not alone in this danger. Like either God, either Jesus himself is there with them, walking around with them, or Jesus has sent an angel to be there with them, walking around with them. They are not alone. That's fulfilling what Isaiah says in chapter 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned and the flame will not consume you. So he looks in, sees these guys walking around. They haven't been, been burned, right? The fire was so hot that it kills people who got close to it, and it hasn't touched them at all, despite the fact that they are immersed right in the middle of it. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And they come out from the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors, they gathered together, and they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. Their hair on their heads was not singed. Their cloaks had not been harmed. There was no smell of fire. I, mean, I, I go to a campfire. I mean, you know, I go to a campfire for like an hour, and my clothes smell like fire for a week. These guys have been in the midst of this like seven x burning, flaming, fiery furnace. They don't smell like smoke at all. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Because the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own, blessed be their God, right? And therefore I make this decree. Any people, any nation, language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that person shall be torn limb from limb, their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in any way. And the king promoted Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And I mean, you know, 
Nebuchadnezzar will see next chapter. He still has some things to learn. He still quite hasn't understood. He's still using his own power dynamics, you know, presumably on behalf of God. And he hasn't quite realized that God often works through weakness and humility rather than through pride and displays of power and, and strength, right? He says, I'm going to make every, I was, at the beginning of the chapter, I was going to make you worship my golden idol, and now I'm going to make you worship God. And he, you know, he still has some, we're going to see him kind of learn and ultimately be uh, profoundly humbled in the next chapter. But it's yet another example of him seeing this extravagant, mighty intervention of God and kind of you know, experiencing the, the, the glory of God, seeing it firsthand. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those servants of God who trusted in God, who willingly went to what was all but certain was going to be their own death. Their God is the true God. They are the true servants of that God. That's why Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego can serve as helpful examples for us as Christians uh, today. Trusting God in the face of persecution and suffering. In the year uh, 155 AD, there was a church father, an old man, a pastor named Polycarp. And this was before... Christianity had kind of been adopted as the main religion of the Roman Empire. That comes about a century or two later. So Polycarp is a pastor in what is still at this point in church history an underground, persecuted minority of a religion. And he's 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 an old man, and and all of a sudden a mob of pagan priests and, uh, you know... um, polytheist worshipers gather together and start to demand that Polycarp be killed. The reasoning was if we kill the leader, then his church will wither and die. And they bring Polycarp before this riotous crowd, and then the governor comes out and kind of issues his edict, his, his you know, verdict. And he says... To much to the crowd's dismay, much to everyone there's right. Polycarp, I am. I pronounce that Polycarp. I'm going to spare his life. Polycarp can live if he renounces his faith in Jesus right here, right now, publicly, and if he worships and offers a sacrifice to Caesar as Lord. If he does that, then he can live. And Polycarp stood up and said. For 86 years, I have served God. I have served Christ. And he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my King and my Savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, for a moment. And after a little while, it's quenched. But you are ignorant of the everlasting punishment that is prepared for those who deny Jesus. And Polycarp was burned at the stake. This is his last words. 
Polycarp knew something that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego did not know. You and I know because of the way that God's revelation unfolds progressively throughout human history, we are privy, we know something that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego did not know. These men, they knew, they were utterly convinced, willing to bet their lives. They knew that God could save them. Polycarp, centuries later, and us, centuries later after him, we know also that God can save us, but we also know exactly how God has saved us. 600 years after this Babylonian furnace, Jesus Christ came and he threw himself into another, a different furnace, one that is far worse, one that burns far hotter. On the cross, Jesus was incinerated in the fiery furnace that is God's righteous, holy justice and wrath. So that the people of God who bow down to God and worship God and trust in God would never have to experience God's justice and wrath so that we could then emerge totally safe, totally secure. Hairs haven't been singed, right? Not even a smell of of smoke to be with Jesus forever. We can look at Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and like them, we can trust God entirely and we can worship God without fear because of what Christ has done for us. Because, like them, we are not alone. Let's pray together. Father, we, um, we thank you for passages like this one that remind us that you are with us always, even, uh, even in the midst of intense suffering and persecution, you are with us. Passages like these that remind us that Jesus has taken the wrath of God that we deserve so that we could be saved from it forever. And passages like this that encourage us to trust in you and to be faithful to you. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to turn away from sin and to worship you and to trust in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.